Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I almost forgot it again. Welcome to another episode of Sheologians. What are the times of day? What do I say? Morning. I've done this like 200 times. Evening. Welcome to another episode of Sheologians. We're here today to put the her in sterilization. Oh, gosh. Okay. Huh. My name is Summer Yeager and... (laughs) I've noticed that my brain is entirely busy growing a child (laughs) and doing very little else. That's just where I'm at. Except for putting together this whole episode. Yeah. Hopefully I did that. (laughs) I feel like I'm about to... I feel that way. Did I? Did I write that? Did I write? Did I say any of that? (laughs) Did I make that up? The wonderful thing about having a wonderful (laughs) co-host is... There's such forgiveness there. I'm just going to throw this one to you. Why don't you, you just, tell us something? You just kind of say something. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, I trust that you will You'll wrap catch this. this up. <laughs> that you will You'll throw it somewhere. put a bow on this. <laughs> I really, last night I, um, so at our gym, they sell those uh, Lenny's cookies. Oh. Which I absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, for a a protein a quick protein product they're delicious yeah i mean they're not like it's not like wow i'm dying for a cookie let me go grab a lenny's there's definitely certain flavors that are better (sighs) yes than others yes and so eric was at the gym last night and i was laying there completely brain dead and I texted him and I was like, your son is dying for a Lenny's cookie. Please bring him one home. And he did. And it was just kind of like what a... What flavor did you get? Um, you know, not to call my husband out or anything, but I didn't get the flavor that I I asked for. <laughs> they probably didn't have it or... I, pr- I mean, they probably only have a certain... I don't know. You know when you send men to the grocery store, you're, you're accepting that you might not get what you want. Right. In his defense... He was at the gym. Yeah. <laughs> so Sprouts probably has more of a, uh, more of a variety than EOS. <laughs> I like the chocolate chip. And if I don't get the chocolate chip, I want the white chocolate chip. Oh. But he like came home with one. the lemon's good. Mm. The birthday cake is good. Uh-huh. But he came home with the double chocolate, which was fine. I just needed like milk to get it down. Oh. <laughs> which, you know, more protein. Right. <laughs> Who That's cares? great. The baby loved it. This is the moral Double of the story. Double chocolate with milk. Yeah. Cookies and milk. And that one does have three more grams of protein. No one cares. But I was like, it's fine. More protein. <laughs> and more protein in the milk. Everything's fine. We're right. building We're building we're the baby. full of protein. <laughs> everything's, everything's going great. Um, I did have a bunch of people send me um, like baby name possibilities. Oh, yes. I saw someone, I think, in the comments on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Give some. And then we had a voicemail from a listener who was dying laughing because two of the, we were talking about how like, it's just weird to like, 
name your baby like a super adult name. Uh-huh. Like you're just holding your infant and you're like, uh-huh. oh, Todd. Well, yeah. anyway, the two na- two of the names you threw out were Linda and Richard. Uh-huh. And so- Which are family members of mine, both. So, <laughs> And so this lady called and she was like, yep, my son's name is Richard. <laughs> my daughter's name is Linda. Like they're and they're young. Richard's like not quite as. <laughs> Because you can do like Ricky. I think it was like a family name. Yeah. And she said that he goes by Rocky. I'm pretty sure. Oh, she okay. Said Rocky. So. All right. Anyway, it was just funny. But yeah, my brother goes by Rick. I don't think. I also have a brother named Jimmy. Well, yeah. his name is James. Right. And he now goes by James. Yeah. My dad but went by I Jimmy. I don't think my brother Richard has ever gone <laughs> by the name Richard. No. No. But um. so then last night, Eric and I were talking about baby names. And he was just throwing out names and he really likes the name Abel. Okay. And I was like, well, the problem with Abel for me is when I hear Abel, and I'm not saying this is sensical, but when I hear the name Abel, all I hear in my head is Tubal Cain. <laughs> that is what I hear. Okay. Tubal Cain. <laughs> Abel, Tubal, I don't know, Tubal, Abel. It's just, I just immediately. Sometimes, sometimes there are very good reasons for rejecting a name. And sometimes there are just reasons. I just don't, <laughs> I don't feel, I'm not feeling that. So then he looked up every male name in the Bible and it was a really long list, obviously. Right. And that, that list Lo- exists uh-huh. on the internet. Yeah. And so he starts scrolling and he's like, tell me when to stop. Cause a so, lot of them are pretty, uh, dated. Is that the word? <laughs> uh, or they're in like different languages. You know, like that's how we got Cheddar Lamore. <laughs> they have like no vowels. In them. <laughs> yeah. like, what? what is that? Of, has, okay. This is like a language that you speak with just spit, you know, it's all in the front. Right. Okay. So he's like scrolling, <laughs> scrolling, scrolling. And he's like, tell me when to stop. And he stops. And guess what name he stopped on? Random name. Out of, out of all the names in the Bible of men, he stopped on Tubal Cain. <laughs> and I was like, is this a sign? Are we going to be our son? <laughs> Like of all the names to stop on. He's scrolling through like. Wow, that is pretty crazy. Thousands. Mm -hmm. Tubal Cain. So anyway, I don't actually like that name nor (laughs) desire to name my child that. I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean anything good. Like Cain, the Canaanites. That was not a good situation. But anyway. um... (laughs) Well, there's I think there's a lot of people that name a lot of biblical names don't always have the best. No. It's like, oh, I like that name. What did that guy do? Oh. 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 Okay. Let's see. Maybe yeah, he not. was. Tubal Cain was the son of Lamech. Yeah, he's. Lamech. Lamech. Uh, Lamech and Zilla. And wow, they really stuck. His half brothers were Jubal and Jabal. <laughs> Tubal and Jubal and Jabal. <laughs> Were they were they Twins. were they speaking a different language? Oh no! Next time when you have twins. Oh, he's known for being the first uh, blacksmith. So that's cool. <laughs> anyway, I promise I'm not naming my son Tubal Cain, just in case people are like starting to worry or that Jubal. I'm like I'm like warming up. <laughs> Warming up to the name as I desire. Oh, I do like blacksmiths. <laughs> I really appreciate what they contribute. Good work. Really good work. <laughs> anyway. Consider that 
<clears throat> oh, and then because well, I hilarious. oh, and then oh, you want to know makes it worse about <laughs> our poor listener that named their kids Linda and Richard. It got worse. Uh huh. <laughs> I said in the episode. <laughs> You know, did he like take apart all her names? She was so sweet. She's like, yeah. No, um, she was so sweet. All my favorite names are the ones you named. She totally understood that if we met her and her kids, we would love them. And oh not, yes, yes. Not judge them right. at all. I have never, <laughs> I've never met someone with such a name and been like, Ugh. right. Oh, Ugh. Richard, how dare okay, you? Well, I'll put them on my list of people I will never talk to again. Right, right, right. <laughs> She did not sound offended. This is the moral <laughs> of the story. But it actually got worse. I forgot. My pregnancy brain. So in the second half of her voicemail, she was like, um, I mentioned how I didn't want my son to have to wear like nothing but like construction oh, uh-huh. items or just like, why do they like you look at baby girl clothes and right. they're like beautiful. And then the boy clothes are like, rawr, I'm a dinosaur. And it's yeah. just like a really bad, <laughs> yeah. like foam dinosaur Uh yes (laughs) anyway i said that about like construction i couldn't even think of construction equipment i was like you know machines (laughs) (laughs) anyway i guess like her husband's from construction so his entire nursery is decorated in like (laughs) construction (laughs) stuff well which is totally fine i don't care well it's totally fine because your nursery is gonna be blacksmith themed (laughs) (laughs) oh tubal get him his own like fire to forge things in. no I, I was telling you about this but i was i was looking on reddit and there was just some ask reddit that was like tell me about products that existed that never ever should have existed but they like sold somewhat well or very well yeah and someone jumped on and was like was like my my grandfather had this little set where you could make your own lead soldiers. <laughs> so they sent you lead and then they sent yeah. you a little melting pot so you could pour molten lead into these little molds <laughs> and let them dry and create your own toys. Ooh, and yeah. just, wow. I know. What an idea. Weren't we saying the other day, I feel like, you know, when we look back on like lead lined and like lead paint and right. all this stuff, we're like, oh my goodness, that was so dangerous. Or like, you know, just smoking, how ubiquitous take, it was. Take cocaine for a healthy pregnancy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I just, I, once a day, I'm like, I wonder what I'm doing today that in 60 years that are going to be like, how did they all survive that? Right. <laughs> like, how is every, how was everyone okay while Man, they were? That's daunting. I mean. <laughs> I can think of one thing, but <laughs> we'll avoid being overly political. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. I mean, you know, you don't have a microwave. You're pretty I don't have hip. a microwave. Honestly, that happened because at one point I was pretty poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, then I was like, why do I need, I don't need a microwave. Nothing it's good really comes out of a microwave. It. I mean... Name one food that tastes better out of a microwave than it does out of an oven. You can't. You can't. My kids, one time I was making quesadillas in the cast iron because they come out all crispy and you cook Mm -hmm. them in oil and they're delicious. And I can't remember. I think it was Kate. She was like, wow, I've never had one not from the microwave before. (laughs) I was just like, that is a tragedy. Right. Because it tastes so much better. It really does. 
nothing tastes better from a microwave. Right. Precisely zero things. So right. anyway, I don't need that in my life is the moral of the story. <laughs> I don't need all that bad stuff in my life. Okay. Anyway, of you all can... the things we'll look back on and be like, oh, they did what? You can be like, well, <laughs> well I didn't do that. I did not do that. You all thing. radiated your food into being warm. <laughs> bad idea anyway okay it was, um it was faster it was faster <laughs> we needed food we hadn't eaten in two hours we needed radiation <laughs> to make it faster you can leave us a voicemail at 470-465-0475 you can grab your uh, feminism is poison items at shop we are going to have to tell you shortly dear listeners what our next book club book is that's right. Uh-huh. Because mm-hmm. we are finishing up The Fruitful Life. It's been a fruitful conversation. We're done. We are totally, we've figured it out now. Have we? Yeah. Okay. We are. With The Fruitful Life. We are we extremely fruitful. List. <laughs> we've lived as much fruitful lives as we're going to. <laughs> Actually, we were joking. Um, I was saying that The Fruitful Life is going to be, totally be required reading yeah. for my kids. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) yeah absolutely i'm starting to there are some books that i can have my 12 year old read yeah that i feel like are helpful she's reading um even exile right now and i forgot how funny rebecca merkel Uh can be i mean not that i forgot but she's very personable in her yeah. writing mm-hmm. and she is hilarious. She has yeah. a good sense of humor. And so Kate keeps coming to me like, listen to this and like reading me a really funny line that she, you know, That's she, fun. she's getting the joke and it right. is, it is fun to You're kind of passing on everything yeah, to her, like I the laughs so. too. And the, yeah. you know, and to hear her get it is just nice. But anyway, we That's will tell cool. you what our next book is. If you've been on the fence about joining, now's the time we have a wonderful group of ladies in there that are just fun. It's been fun getting to know them. I always say the best way to create a bond with someone is to work alongside them. And maybe like to read alongside someone also is a good way to get to know them. Um, So I just, I feel so comfortable in book club because everybody there, I don't know. It's like we know them. Yeah. The ones that are really chatty, you know? Right. And I like that. Yeah, it's like an extra little level. Yeah. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. uh, that's happening at patreon.com slash sheologians. So you can go there. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's story time. Story time with Auntie Sum. <laughs> it is. We have, we're, I mean, this is it. Yeah. We're capping off our fem- feminism character studies series by doing. Although I think this. we kind of are always in some way or another discussing feminism. Yeah. I'm excited to not be explicitly discussing yes. feminism uh, shortly. But I'm glad we didn't do more. <laughs> yeah. Then <laughs> this was the most. We did the most. Yeah. We're leaving this behind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And our last, as you'll see, <laughs> these... These last two episodes, we definitely didn't give ourselves a break. No. But uh, we decided, I'm just going to say it again. (laughs) We decided last year that we really wanted to talk about flattery. And we thought for sure we should just get through the feminism series first. And then we sat down right now to like brainstorm. We got almost past flattery. (laughs) 
think we had like two other episodes. <laughs> two other ideas. We've just been so we've been so stuck in the feminism series that thinking beyond the yeah. one topic idea we had was hard. Anyway. Yeah. So I like to read biographies. Mm-hmm. And at some point last year, I was wandering through the biography section. I don't know why. Sometimes I go through these like periods of time where I think I should definitely read nonfiction for enjoyment. Um, I almost always regret it because <laughs> I enjoy fiction. Right. And mm-hmm. yes, I have read some nonfiction books that I've enjoyed, but for the most part, it bores me. Anyway. Okay. I saw the title of this biography. Biography. kind of like a, they meet in the middle. Yeah. It's a story... But it's true. Yeah. So, yeah. So, this uh, this book caught my eye. It was called The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne C- Cooper Hewitt. And then I read the front cover. And then I bought it. And now I'm going to tell you the story. So, the book is by a lady named Audrey Claire Farley. And that's pretty much where I got all of my information. But this story is crazy because I had to learn a lot about... U.S. history that sounds fake uh-huh. and is absolutely true. Um, <clears throat> so in January of 1936, so we're between the two world wars, heiress mm-hmm. Anne Cooper Hewitt was suing her mother, Marion Cooper Hewitt, for half a million dollars. Anne claimed that her mother had paid two doctors to, quote, unsex her during what was a scheduled appendectomy. And they did this because if she, uh, they did this before she turned 21, because that was when she was settled, going to start getting her inheritance. And if the stipulation of her inheritance was that if she died without an heir, without having children, then her mother would receive her inheritance. So she was saying her mother had her unknowingly sterilized so that the inheritance would go. Which is also a little scary because that means that her mother would also have to survive her. I'm going to tell you about her mother. (laughs) Which is a little chilling because it's like, okay. (laughs) All right. So what makes you so sure that I'm going to die before you? And shady lady. (laughs) Anne's mother, Marion, by the way, spelled Mary on. Like Mary and then O-N. Oh, not how I was imagining it. I know. Whenever I read it, I'm like, this is weird and I don't like it. Okay. Marion. Um, she was a gold digger. She, uh, by the time she died, had married five different husbands, all of which made a lot of money. Uh, so her first marriage was to a guy named Peter, spelled P-E-D-A-R, by the way. The spellings. Anyway. Well, these are a bunch of weird ideas. <laughs> I know. You already know the story's weird. Peter. Okay, anyway. I'm going to call him Peter. I mean, I guess, do you think that was like the cultural version of like all the Kayleys and... Yeah, the Brayleys, like the-, the Kayleys, the McShwayleys. <laughs> yeah. McShwayley. Someone out there. I'm about to get a voicemail. Yeah. My I daughter's name my is daughter. McShwayley. <laughs> and we love our microwave. Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, I love McShwaley and your microwave is fine. Your quesadillas suck. Anyway, um, so she married this guy named Peter 
And I should have looked this up because it's a Spanish name that I've never seen before. It looks like Bruguier. Bruguier. It could be Brugari, but that sounds like a cheese to me. <laughs> well, and based off of how they spell everything, really weird. It doesn't matter. It could be a totally different name as well. Doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. So she married this uh, Spanish doctor, Peter Brugier. His family had come to the U.S. Um, and basically had a lot of money. And this is a running theme in Marion's life. She married men who had to divorce their wives in order to marry her. That okay. was that was a thing. That was right. a repeated thing. Okay. Um, because she was a bit of a socialite by marrying Peter, she would be in the magazines and the newspapers, which is kind of like, you know, we read about our socialites on right. social media. Right. They wrote about them. I read some of the um, headlines. They were hilarious. She was called a temptress. They well, said that. I mean, obviously <laughs> she was. They were... Um, uh, she would use her good looks to lure men away from their way more respectable wives. Um, and she liked being written about. This did not bother her at all. She was unfazed. She was totally into the whole scene. I have so much money <clears throat> I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I am so, by the way, honestly, not that cute. I mean, I didn't. I don't get it. But you know, they dispelled their names weird. They were into right. weird. It was women. a different time. Anyway, um, she would often wait outside of Peter's office, and she would go up to women like he was a doctor. Like he saw patients, you know. Mm -hmm. And she would go up to them, and she would be like, "I know you have intimate knowledge of my husband," and she would make like wild accusations. She would just like wait outside. Uh, one obviously time, obviously, she thought everyone was as crazy as she was. <laughs> right. Which is, when you're crazy, you tend to think yeah, everyone else is right. too. <laughs> uh, one time, she had she had written a note and she had stuck it in. She like pushed it into this girl's hand. This girl was like pushing her um, stroller and had her was holding onto her toddler and they were walking. And she like forced this note into this girl's hand and just like mysteriously walked away. And the note said. He's married to me now. Find another doctor or else there will be consequences. I mean, she was wild. Okay. Wild and out. Um, she spent a lot of her time when she wasn't stalking patients of her husband yeah. um, at a restaurant called Delmonico, which is in lower Manhattan. And uh, the menus there were so fancy. They were written in French and basically, this is kind of where you, like, this was kind of where if you were committing an affair, like your fancy husband or the fancy guy would, like, have a secret mistress lunch okay. at Delmonico's. So it was discreet. Yes. And I thought this tidbit was interesting because the, the book read, the plates were often $3 a plate. <laughs> Which would be ninety dollars oh, in today's money, probably a hundred by now, because this book was published a couple of years ago. A hundred dollars. The three dollars was equal to a hundred dollars per plate. Wow, now, that's crazy. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. Which means we'd probably laugh at the amount of money she was trying to, like, tempt yeah. her way into. Oh yeah, like I'm reading he these had a, numbers. He like had a fortune of. 
$300. (laughs) Right, right. I instantly knew he must be mine. (laughs) I know. There was one husband that she later divorced because she had all this money Uh from all of her divorces. Um, And there was one guy where like she did the math and she said that she was spending like $12,000 a year on this guy. And so she couldn't be married to him anymore. (laughs) But I was just like, okay. Anyway, um, to no one's surprise, eventually she and Peter dissolve their marriage right um and then she married a wall street guy and then the wall street guy was realized that she was crazy and then divorced her and then she was back to delmonico's well then she went back to try to get peter's more money from peter anyway the the point of me telling you any of this is that it's really not outside the realm of possibility that she would try to scam her own daughter out of the money yeah so that's marion that's Anne's mother. Anne's father was Peter Cooper Hewitt. If you're up on inventions in the early 1900s, you know who he is. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit. So in uh, he had he was very well respected. Um, his entire family was. He his grandfather. Um, they were extremely rich because well in the 1890s, Peter had developed the incandescent lamp. Oh, like that was his idea. Um, it, which means it converts only 5% of energy into light and it turned the rest into heat. Uh, and then this transformed factories. This helped the industrial right. revolution move along. Um, and then part of what his grandfather uh, had done was essentially enable us to have transatlantic conversations. So his grandfather had helped... I mean, was a big contributor in the laying of the first transatlantic cable. Um, And so then Peter, so that was his grandfather. Peter also, uh, he went on, he worked with um, Thomas Edison. He helped perfect the electric storage battery. Um, Peter also developed the hydro airplane and the high-speed motorboat. So Sounds like a busy guy. Extremely busy, extremely wealthy. Um, he's just one of the names that yeah, he probably had like five thousand dollars. He probably yes, he had thousands <laughs> of dollars. You guys, a thousandaire. <laughs> okay, well, he was a millionaire. Yeah, right. Which back right. then was it, it means it today he'd sounds, be a billionaire. Right. It just sounds funny. I don't know. I know. I can't escape it. So, um, Peter was married, as most people in the nineteen hundreds were. Um, but he mostly was just off doing his science things. Okay. Um, apparently, his wife was kind of just happy to like. I would imagine that someone like someone who just marries for money, that's the best sort of mm-hmm. setup they could have. Yeah, is be married to someone with a lot of money that also just affords them like a lot of freedom and privacy and yes. just kind of like yes. does their own thing. Yes, I think the newspapers... The well, news- and it sounds like the only way he could remain married to her is to just completely go do his own thing yes. as well. Uh, I think the newspaper article I read said something like, he was too much of science to keep the romance alive or something like really dramatic okay. like that. So he and his wife, everybody knew like he was off doing his own thing. Right. She was having a good time, I'm pretty sure, in either New York or Paris. I can't remember which one. Both. Bro- why not? <laughs> Well, Peter Cooper Hewitt came across Anne. I'm sorry, Marion. 
not his daughter, Marion, who at the time was still going by Marion Brugier or whatever uh-huh. that word is. And according to the San Francisco Chronicle, because, yes, they reported on stuff like this. By the way, we've always cared what our celebrities are up to. Right, right. Um, All the <laughs> old articles I read about these people, it's just like reading stuff about the Kardashians now. Like, oh, and so-and-so was looking at so-and-so. And I'm just like, wow, like, we've been doing this as long right. as we've been publishing. We, like, want to know what rich people are doing. Yeah, and, what are the what rich and famous doing? And, and yeah. well, from the moment he entered, so they, they met at a play or at the theater and the san francisco chronicle said from the moment he entered mrs brugieri's box peter cooper i can't say that peter cooper hewitt was hopelessly lost he hung on her every word and begged to see her again um so then they started up an affair and he was hanging out with marion rather publicly (laughs) rather publicly well hilariously it's funny that you say that because Marion proposed that they go spend their winter in Paris because what else do you do when you're a socialite? You know, it's like when Kim Kardashian's like, I'm spending the summer in Montana. <laughs> like, what? Winter sounds like a horrible time to go to Paris. Seriously. <clears throat> well, so Peter said yes, as long as they didn't stay in the same house because he had business interests there and his business could be compromised if people learned that. He was having an affair. He was a brute. Right. Well, not long after that, Marion got pregnant. <laughs> obviously. Um, just obviously. When he found out, he was like, how did this happen? I'm 60. <laughs> and Marion was like, yes, and I'm pregnant. <laughs> Hello. Okay. <laughs> um, so he was shocked. This man of I science. Am not 60. Yeah. This man of science was just, wow, wow, how did this happen? Mm. Anyway. We um, were in two separate houses. We stayed in separate houses. Uh, So over during her pregnancy, Marion thought for sure that he would finally leave his wife and they would get married. Um, But instead, he, you know, he stayed with his wife, Lucy, uh, and kind of withdrew. And she was like, it's fine. Like, once the baby comes, then he'll for sure change his mind. And once he holds the baby, whatever. Well, she went into labor early and she ended up um, giving birth, like, way sooner than she thought. And so she had to send a telegram because Peter was in America at this point. You know, he's Mr. Science. He's off doing things. He's in Paris. He's in New York. Blah, blah, blah. That's the life he lives. Right. Well, plus he has a wife to plus he has a wife and a family. (laughs) Uh, So she has the baby and then she almost immediately gets a telegram from Peter and the telegram wasn't like, oh, yay, congratulations. Can't wait to meet my baby. It was like evacuate to England right now and get to the U.S. It is not safe. Um, And if you know, if you're following the timeline or maybe anything. So anyway, they evacuated just in time right before German aircraft and artillery began to bomb the city. So she escaped Paris literally with her newborn in the nick of time. Um, So in Britain, she made it to Britain. Uh, By the way, she, this is like a total footnote. She had a son with Peter who was with her this whole time. We hardly know anything about him. He's there in all of the story that I'm telling you. Oh, yep. I know. 
Don't even remember his name. He's a footnote in all of this. <laughs> Don't know what happened to him. Wow. Uh, but in Britain, she found a nurse to take care of the kids. And she would often go days without even seeing her newborn. Um, and one time when the nurse had gone up, up top, they were on a ship to America. The nurse had gone up top. Um, she heard Anne, the newborn, screaming. And she basically went in and looked down at Anne and was like, man, I wish she'd never been born. So anyway, uh, when she got to New York, Ooh. Peter left Lucy and married Marion. <laughs> Everyone in this story is crazy. It gets crazier. If you, I haven't even gotten to the crazy part yet. Okay. Oh, wow. I'll get there. Um, so obviously the press was like, how did someone like Marion, who's just this like temptress, like get somebody of such quality moral character as Peter... Which, you know, is Yeah, a real moral and upstanding guy. Yeah, real upstanding guy. Because basically, although everybody knew, like, the husbands she'd had before were successful, they were doctors, they were businessmen, they had money, they just weren't obviously in the same league as the inventor of the mercury vapor lamp. And he was also the son of a mayor. He was the grandson of old New York's first citizen, which was apparently some title that meant a lot at the time. Um... (laughs) And the newspapers were like, what is he doing with this enchantress? You know, like, how did this happen? Anyway, if you'll remember, Peter was old. Uh-huh. Um, he traveled a lot and worked with a lot of probably sketchy, like we were talking about, scientific things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was working with mercury vapors. Right. So his health was bad. Um, he had to have his appendix removed, but that didn't fix things. Um. Before he had his appendix removed and his health got bad, he had a good relationship with Anne. And now that Marion and Peter were married, it actually kind of annoyed Marion that he would like get down on the floor and play with his little daughter. And they were, just had a really warm relationship. And Marion's like, why do you like this creature? Like something's wrong with her. She's ugly. She's annoying. Marion was always very cruel. And this was corroborated well, by... the only thing she liked was people who liked her doing whatever she wanted yes um so uh he got sick he had his appendix removed and then at that point he like couldn't even play with Anne. he couldn't even leave the apartment he basically just had to stay in bed um and marion didn't want to stay home and like take care of him she never stopped going out and socializing and um while he had to like limp around the apartment she became reportedly very friendly with the manager of the Ritz Hotel that they were staying in. He was a 24-year-old Baron Robin de Erlinger. I can't say that name. <laughs> um, anyway, so... The Baron. The Baron. In August of that year, Peter died, and the nurse that had been hired to come like help out with Peter mm-hmm. um, firmly, firmly believed that Marion had poisoned him. Yeah, I was going to say, I, uh, mm-hmm. I yeah. was wondering if that the nurse had not, she did not have evidence that I think would have been able to be prosecuted. Right. But her testimony was pretty damning. Okay. So, but nothing came of it. Yeah. Um, and as soon as the nurse, because the nurse told Marion 
I think you poisoned him. Oh. The nurse, well, or uh, Marion, Marion immediately set about firing the nurse and making sure that nobody would believe her. Mm-hmm. Uh, accusing her of theft. And she actually had somebody look into the nurse's past to see if she had any, like, record or anything like that. And I guess because of something that had happened, like, 20 years before, she was like, I'm going to tell people about this. No one's going to believe you. So Marianne came down pretty hard on the nurse and making sure that the nurse would not be able to tell anybody. Which is totally a thing <clears throat> yeah. normal adjusted people do. Oh, yes. The innocent are always going around <laughs> behaving in such a way threatening to stifle testimony against them. (laughs) So after Anne had, so now, so let's fast forward. Anne's an adult. She's about to turn 21. Um, She's trying to, she's bringing this lawsuit against her mother. It's very, very public. She's saying my mother secretly had me permanently sterilized Without my permission, without me knowing. This is what happened. Um, and when she was talking to the press, she would say things, she, you know, she said, my mother always left me in the hotel suite with a maid when she went downstairs to gamble or roll the dice. I once told my mother, no, I'm not staying here another night. I want to come with you. And so my mother promised me a nice moleskin coat. I said, I don't want that. And her and mother just slammed the door in my face. So... That, like, kind of in a nutshell is their relationship. Anne was saying she gambled away all of my money. She gambled away all of my inheritance. She had nothing to do with me. She left me with nurses. She hates me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Anne also said that she was essentially pursuing this lawsuit in order to, quote, protect others, not because she needed the money. And her attorney explained that just aside from sterilizing her daughter, Marion had wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars that belonged in Anne's trust fund in gambling and traveling and basically that Mrs. Cooper Hewitt needed to compensate her daughter for all that she had. Wow. For all that she'd done. She was suing her for $500,000, which... Wow. So lots of money. <laughs> so much billions in today's money. <laughs> oh, that's a lot. Uh, I mean, that's a lot for now for me. Yeah. I mean, so I'll take it. <laughs> if it was a lot for me, then it was even back then. Wow. Um, Man. So aside from her, the civil lawsuit, Anne was also asking for a full accounting of all of the money that her mother had spent for the last 10 years. Um, the accounting to my knowledge was never produced, but the attorneys indicated that it would pretty much, I mean, it would really prove that her mother had been squandering and wasting all kinds of money that, uh, belonged in the Cooper family trust. Um, how did she get to it? Yeah. I don't understand how she, I mean, well, at that point, Peter had died, so she was in charge of a lot of it. Okay. Um, so she, she was have... one of she did get it right i'm sure some of it was her, yeah. legitimately hers i think but... it was like two-thirds was hers and one-third would go to Anne. okay as long as Anne had an heir right um then Anne would receive the money and she would start receiving it at 21 oh okay okay so uh basically what Marion did in response to the lawsuit was to tell the world about Anne and her private life. And basically she said her claim was that Anne gave her 
uh, no choice. And yeah, and gave her no choice because, well, we're going to get into why that was in a second. Um, Their case essentially started a whole entire nationwide debate on womanhood, the purpose of sexuality, and whether or not we should allow doctors to decide who should reproduce. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but we've come to the history portion of our lesson <laughs> as to why uh, a century ago it was very common for doctors to decide who could and couldn't have children. So, um, again, I got this information from the book, but you can just look any of this up on the internet. It's all there and it's all disturbing. So, in 1883, there was an English intellectual. His name was Francis Galton, and he is the one who came up with the word eugenics. And the word eugenics just means well-born. And the whole idea was to advocate a selective breeding process among humans. Uh, he believed for a long time that his country, we're talking about he was English, <clears throat> was being Overrun by wretched people. (laughs) What a horrible. Overrun by wretched people who depended upon the charity of affluent families like his. After reading his cousin Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species, good old Francis, decided that he needed to influence the evolution of human beings. So that's where the idea of eugenics came from. Uh, from these cousins, essentially. He said that it was extremely important that members of the upper class, the rich, mm-hmm. pass down the quote-unquote characteristics associated with it, such as superior intelligence. If well-born women had children, then social evils, like poverty, could be eliminated. We don't want babies being born poor, do we? Okay. Um, There was an American biologist named Charles Davenport who loved this guy's ideas. He was like, yes. Um, Davenport would often, this is a report from one of his colleagues that really stuck out to me. So this guy worked with Davenport. He's an American biologist, super loved eugenics. He would enter a trance-like state Whenever he spoke of eugenic concepts such as protoplasm, which is the genetic material needed to create a, quote, more perfect race, he used to lift his eyes reverently and with his hands upraised as though in supplication, he would quiver emotionally as he breathed, protoplasm, we want more protoplasm. (laughs) Oh, my. Uh Uh-huh. Demons. Okay. Seriously. <clears throat> Here's what's super interesting. Are you ready? Wow. All right. That's Davenport. Loves the protoplasm. Prays to it. Trance-like state. In 1910, he founded the Eugenics Record Office at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. He funded this with his buddies, such as the Rockefellers, the Carnegies. They owned steel. The Kellogg's. Carnegie and Rockefeller basically owned everything, everything. at one point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the Carnegie's, 
the Rockefellers, the Kellogg's. Yeah, I like the cereal. And the Harrimans. You don't know that name. That's because they they owned the railroads. Hmm. Um, and he appointed a guy named Harry Laughlin as the Eugenic Records Office first director. And then they hired field workers to go out and collect family pedigrees from the public. Why did they do this? Why were they getting family pedigrees? Let me tell you why. So Davenport, his guy Laughlin, what they would do was they would go present what they had found out about families to local government agencies, to lawmakers, so that they could expand anti-miscegenation laws, so the laws that prohibited um, marriage between races, Mm -hmm. um, so they could pass immigration policies, and so that they could implement involuntary sterilization programs. So they were getting all this information at the eugenics records office with the help of the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, the Kellogg's, so on and so forth. So they could pass laws for involuntary sterilization programs. So two men from California were so inspired by this that three years later in 1913, they were like, California should totally be leading in all of this like sterilization stuff. Like we should be on the cutting edge of involuntarily sterilizing people that we don't like because they're poor. (laughs) Their names were Paul Papineau and Ezra Gosney. So they worked for about a decade. So we're in 1928 now. And they essentially spent years trying to convince every college, academia, leading churches, that sterilization was good for humanity. Um, And so they established what's called the Human Betterment Foundation in Pasadena, California. Their stated purpose was to foster and aid constructive and educational forces for the protection and betterment of the human family in mind, body, character, and citizenship. Basically, what they wanted to do was basically just increase public knowledge about how good sterilization was. Um. And that they needed funding. Well, it's always easier to sterilize with the consent of the person. Oh, that's true. That's true. But they didn't believe in that, really. <laughs> Papineau and Gosney wrote a number of very important texts that uh, it was based on one of their most popular ones is called uh, Sterilization for Human Betterment. Results of 6,000 operations in California between 1909 and 1929. This is basically data that they got from uh, studying inmates in California. And eventually, <clears throat> this... they sterilized? Yes. Uh-huh. Involuntarily. And this text found its way into Nazi Germany. In 1930, a guy named Eugen Fischer the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology and Human Heredity and Eugenics, it's a long name, sorry, in Berlin, wrote a letter of gratitude to Gosney and Papineau for their insights, saying that these issues will be of great importance for legislation here in Germany. So Germany didn't come up with it. California did. California expedited the rise of eugenics in Nazi Germany. They used our textbooks. Uh, five years later, that guy, Eugen Fischer, the from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of blah, 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 blah. Is there like a, what's the 
What's the acronym? Yeah. What does that spell? Demon. <laughs> um, <laughs> Demon. Five years after he wrote that letter, he used the textbook that they had written, remember, after they had involuntarily sterilized people for 20 years. Yeah, but it was prisoners. So it was prisoners. It was so it was low quality people. Um, he used the textbook that Papineau and Gosney wrote to write the Nuremberg Laws. And if you don't know what those are, those were the laws uh, used to further separate the Jews and the Germans. It meant that uh, there could be no marriage between someone who was Jewish and German. And it declared that only those of German descent or related blood would be eligible for citizenship. He used Gosney's work as a essentially a rubric uh, for selecting children to sterilize under the Nazi regime. Thank you, California. Okay. Um, so obviously... They're still at it. They're still doing it, you, by the way. They're still at it. Well, that's one thought that I... Well, let me finish this. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there was a lot of momentum for eugenics in the U.S., obviously. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court had essentially, I think in 1928, reaffirmed the legality of involuntarily sterilization by holding up the state of Virginia's decision to operate on a woman who was deemed feeble-minded after she had become an unwed mother. So this young woman named Carrie Buck, she was poor. She was from rural Virginia. Um, she was raped at 16 years of age. Um, and after she'd given birth in 24, she had been committed to a mental institution and the authorities decided to remove her fallopian tubes under this involuntary sterilization law and the Supreme Court upheld that decision. So this was common in our nation a hundred years ago. Uh, <clears throat> I thought another little interesting tidbit, there were a lot, many liberal Protestant Americans encouraged the eugenic principles during sermons on Sunday. So the Catholics, the Orthodox Protestant Church, the conservative Presbyterians <laughs> vehemently opposed involuntary sterilization, but the progressive Methodist, Presbyterian, and Episcopals encouraged what they called selective breeding. They would have what's called eugenics sermon contests that they would be paid to be a part of, and they contributed to eugenics magazines. Um, the worldly leaders, you know, the progressives, uh, instructed that Christians were fighting in a common, Christians and eugenicists were fighting in a common battle because they wanted to remove the causes of weaknesses. The sooner weakness was removed, the better. And liberal Protestants would offer, often use uh, the quote from the, the verse in gospel, it says a good tree uh, cannot bear bad fruit oh, uh -huh. as their reasoning behind mm. why this was a good thing wow. which is why it's really important to know what the bible actually says yes but i just also thought it was interesting because i think liberal protestants and liberal Episcopals, they're still at it they still, still uh, they still it. are not very anti-killing the poor are they now we don't sterilize the mothers we just well Abortion can sterilize you, but instead of plucking women off the streets, we create safe places for them to go to kill their babies that might be born right. poor or unwanted. Mm -hmm. um, Even the ones that wouldn't be born that poor. Right. And we say it's for their best. It's for it's, mm -hmm. it's the human betterment project, right? 
I mean, we still believe this. We still believe all of this. It There's just a, has better names. Right. Well, and we don't um we don't delve too well, much not into we, the history. But... Right. <laughs> Our culture. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with when we talked about Margaret Sanger. Mm-hmm. Like all the principles and all the philosophy is still there, but we yeah. don't refer to the actual people who came up with it because all those yeah. people did horrible things well, and we'd have to reconcile that somehow yes. and we can't. Well, that's an interesting point about Margaret Sanger is that she started, so she originally was a part of the eugenics movement, mm-hmm. but she started to think it should go differently. So instead of plucking women off of the streets and sterilizing them, just killing the baby instead. Right. Yeah. That was her idea of what was more right. compassionate. And so she actually broke with uh, Papineau mm-hmm. and Gosney at that point because she was... She wasn't originally, but she eventually became against the involuntary sterilization laws because she wanted, she was really influential in making really abortion the new form of eugenics as opposed to involuntarily sterilizing someone. Yeah. So anyway. Because killing a person would be wrong. Right. No, because sterilizing a person would be wrong. (laughs) Okay. So one of the difficulties of the case this wrongful treatment that Anne Hewitt was claiming was that most people at the time, like it was legal to pluck people off the streets and involuntarily operate on them. If they were deemed wayward, you just had impoverished. You just had to establish that they were not going to produce good fruit. Yes. And then you could. And that's, that's what, that's what Marion, her mother decided to say about her. How it wasn't about the money. How old was she? She was about to turn 20. It was before she turned 21 because that was kind of like the cut. Like it had to happen before she turned 21 because basically she was going to start receiving money from the trust. Okay. But she was going to receive her full inheritance as long as she had an heir. So that was kind of like the the agreement. So there were different right. streams of money that she I was going to have access to. When did she to. have her sterilized? It, I don't know. I don't remember exactly. Sometime before she turned 21. Okay. So that was the point. Because if she... So at some point... If she was not the girl, able to have a... Anne was probably legitimately sick. Yes. She didn't have appendicitis. Then, yes. So, okay. Yes. So she, basically she waited for a cover. Or Marion had a doctor convince her that it was appendicitis. Or she poisoned her. And, right. <laughs> and she had to go to the doctor. Right. So it was going to be easy for the prosecutors in the case to prove that she had been involuntarily sterilized because she had no idea this was going to happen and she no longer had tubes. It wasn't right. like they had her tubes tied. It was like they were right. gone. Yeah. Um, And the paperwork, we can see there was a trail of lies because the operating physician said that the tubes had only been tied even though they were removed. Um, And so what the... What the uh, prosecutor was going for is a count called mayhem. That's what they were going for. They were, they wanted uh, the doctors and Marion to be prosecuted for mayhem. So criminal liability for mayhem means that you would have to prove uh, gross negligence, criminal intent, or the fact of being engaged in another felony. So there was no question that they had that the doctors had acted with malice and insidious intent um, because what other reason would they have to perform a surgery that she didn't know of or she didn't want it. Also, each of the doctors uh, had accepted $9,000 for this procedure, which normally they would have only been paid like a couple hundred bucks. So there was also intent there. 
So there was lots and lots of testimony. I'm not going to like. The case was insane. It was a public. It was like their that era's O.J. Simpson trial. Okay. So it involved famous people. Famous people, and... scandal, things that people couldn't believe were happening. I mean, it was crazy. Um, so there were weeks of testimony and the people in the jury box for some reason appeared to be stumped. Some of them believed that Anne was innocent and then some of them believed that she was a deviant who should have been sterilized. Uh, one said that Anne was very intelligent and another one said that she was an imbecile. So the jury was extremely split. Um, some of them associated sterilization with lawlessness and some with law and order. Um, unfortunately, after all of this time and trouble, um, their opinions were never really heard by the court because the judge dismissed the case. He said the entire case was a misuse of public funds uh, and the evidence was not meritorious enough to be given to the jury to decide. And because sterilization, this was being prosecuted in California, because sterilization in California was not a crime, mayhem could not have been committed and there could have been no conspiracy to commit it. The most that can be said, he said, is that there were suspicions and innu innuendos. Uh and he did agree that the so the timing of Anne's sterilization happening like right before her 21st birthday was like meaningful. But the judge just threw out the case. Papineau and Gosney, they obviously had been following the case uh, in the newspaper and they were super excited. Papineau had written a letter to Gosney that said, may I join my congratulations to the flood of them for which I'm sure you've been receiving for your smashing victory, which the appellate court seems to have now made complete. So they believed the eugenicists that this was essentially a nail in the coffin, that what they were doing was going to be able to move forward all across the country. Right. This was a huge step. You know, their whole goal was to make sterilization laws in California just be the gold standard for the entire nation involuntary sterilization yes like if you can get an involuntary sterilization dismissed then it's like oh who's gonna stop us who's gonna stop us essentially yeah what we're doing is fine yeah um so even though that case had been dismissed um marion the mom wasn't completely off the hook uh so the um, I should have been more clear. The case that was dismissed was the case against the two doctors. The case against Marion was its own separate case. Oh, okay, that had not been brought to court yet. She had been hiding in New Jersey, so she didn't even come to California for any of this. Um, they had to extradite her, and they did. That was a whole long story. I'm not gonna weigh us down with. <laughs> um, so she was extradited, and the San Francisco district attorneys were absolutely determined to get her there and put her on trial for a conspiracy to commit mayhem and that she needed to pay. Now, the crime of mayhem was typically punished with a maximum of 14 years in prison at this time. Um, and that case did end with a settlement. So... I think sadly, or I don't know. <laughs> uh, Marion paid her daughter Anne a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's what the settlement was for. Um, and then three years later, Marion died. So that was the end of that. Anne got a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
Um, unfortunately, this is a really sad ending. Um, unfortunately, Anne married five times and died of cancer at the age of 40. How did she have How did she have time, time to, to marry? I have no idea. I feel like I'm staring 40 down like in the eye. I mean, I'm 33. So it's not that far into the future and I'm just like, man, that sounds she... horrible. <laughs> so, how did she do that? How did Five? she do that? 5. Um I mean, I can't I can't imagine she was the most adjusted person after being raised. No. And I, ugh. no, and certainly she didn't deserve to be Mm-mm. how horrible she had a horrible life, really how sad, horrible to be. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yeah, man. Uh, many states had laws on the books allowing involuntary sterilization up until the 1970s, which is honestly like the other day. Ugh. Yeah. So, um, I mean, like I said, I think (laughs) you can't look at that fact and go, oh, well, I'm so glad those are gone. Like, we really did just change the focus. Right. Like, we used to primarily attack the mother uh, and her ability to reproduce. And they would do this to men as well. They would they would involuntarily sterilize men as well. Mm -hmm. But it was mostly women. Um, But, yeah, now we just kill the babies instead well which means like it's not involuntary right we just you have to go hire them that Mm -hmm. you can take care of it yourself well i mean what a great ploy to convince women that it's a good thing to get rid of their children right uh obviously i think a hundred years ago many people did know that's not a good thing the jury was split down the middle right some of them did believe it was fine and good Mm -hmm. and moral and some of them didn't and just to note, it's always the progressives that are pro-death, just to be completely honest. Right. Um, I think progressives want to say that they're the ones that, you know, well, they're the ones that probably ended the sterilization laws. But that's not true. It was actually the progressives that were pro all of that. Right. Um, and it was progressives that helped change the focus, the focus of death from the women to the babies instead. Yeah. But um, her case really was the first case that made it that brought the top the topic of this to like the popular consciousness right so that was important like um, can you just bring your, your daughter, daughter right in right to be sterilized right. a in general right b <laughs> because you want her money right which yeah i mean do we even have to answer that one <laughs> yep Wow. That's it. That's the story of Ann Cooper Hewitt. Like I said, I mean, yeah, it's really sad at the end, but um, that's it. What an insane time. I know. Well, and my first thought was like, how do I talk about this? Like, this is such a crazy thing that they used to believe. And then the more I read about it, I was like, no, we still believe all these things. Right. We just call it reproductive rights now. Right. Well, and like I said, we don't like we've kind of conveniently forgotten our sources we like don't cite our beliefs anymore Mm -hmm. because the people that Mm -hmm. (laughs) inspired the way that we live largely Mm -hmm. committed what we consider now to be atrocities and so we can't yeah we like can't credit 
mm-hmm. our beliefs no. as a culture because that would make us look really right. bad. Feminism essentially took all of this, took the focus off the mom, made it about killing the offspring, and then called it something nice like reproductive rights. Right. Like feminism didn't help this issue right. at all. Uh, they just lied to women about what it, it is. In the name of kindness. Yeah. Which is how they would have packaged it back then anyway. Yep. We're doing this person a kindness. This person can't. Right. It's always been kids. that. Yeah. They would be poor and then the kids would have right. a horrible life. Right. We're, all, we're saying all the same things. And the rich people are deciding right. what poor is. Yes. It's always the elites that are deciding so, who this is best for. And don't forget that we exported eugenics to Nazi Germany. You can leave us a voicemail at 470-465. Thank you, California. 0475. That was fun. Anyway, all right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.